Listener Production. Hi, Rihanna Patrick here and welcome to The Briefing. It's that time of the year when shopping centres and malls across Australia are decked out in all their Christmas finery and long queues are waiting to get that annual photo with Santa. But a new documentary unwraps the world of a US Santa camp, which is trying to diversify its ranks of professional Santas and the expectations of what Santa should look like. They have to wear many hats, not just a Santa hat. They've got to be a psychologist and a teacher and a magician and a a confidant. Like they have to really be ready for anything. And often kids will ask them really tough questions like, can you bring my grandparent back? That's in the second half of today's episode. But first, headlines with Eleanor Harrison-Dengate. It's Friday, the 23rd of December. A man believed to be one of the world's biggest drug kingpins has been extradited to Melbourne. It would be one of the most significant arrests in the history of the AFP. That's the AFP's Chrissy Barrett. And Sichi Lop is allegedly responsible for up to 70% of narcotics that reach our shores. His arrest comes after a long-running investigation into the world's largest transnational organised crime syndicate known as the company, of which Sichi Lop is alleged to be the head of. Yeah, so it's believed the company oversees meth revenue of $8 billion a year with reported connections to Chinese triads, Vietnamese money launderers, bikies, Australian casinos and corrupt Asian officials. So this case has spanned a decade with C.T. Lop finally arrested in the Netherlands last year. The appeals there were exhausted, so now he's here in custody. Yeah, the AFP are alleging the Canadian was responsible for trying to traffic 20 kilos of methamphetamine worth $4.4 million between Sydney and Melbourne over 2012 and 2013. So he's been charged with conspiracy to traffic commercial quantities of controlled drugs and if found guilty, potentially faces life in prison. And Rihanna, there's a bit more to this story, isn't there? Yeah, so his co-accused Chung Chuck Lee, a 66-year-old Chinese-British dual national, has already been charged by the AFP with conspiracy to traffic commercial quantities of controlled drugs. And Lee was arrested at his Bangkok apartment in October 2020 by Royal Thai Police based on charges to be laid in Australia, and he was extradited here in June. I can see a movie out of this. The neighbour killed in last week's shooting in rural Queensland will be farewelled today in a private service. Family and friends of Alan Dare will say goodbye to the classic Ford enthusiast with a parade of his favourite cars included as part of the funeral. Dare will be posthumously awarded the Queensland Police Bravery Medal. Meanwhile, Queensland Police have revealed the four officers who were ambushed at the property were following up on an outstanding warrant. The warrant related to firearms and a border breach by shooter Nathaniel Train, as well as the missing persons report. Authorities say they had little information about the trains prior to the shooting. An internal review into the Liberal Party's defeat at the federal election lays the majority of the blame at the feet of Scott Morrison, with voters believing he was out of touch. The report also says the demands of managing COVID-19 and scandal, disunity and instability hurt the party, as well as allegations of poor treatment towards women. So the party currently has the lowest number of women in its parliamentary ranks since 1993. They also had issues with Chinese voters who need to be wooed back. Uh, The swing against the party on a two-party preferred basis was 6.6% in seats with a high concentration of Chinese voters. 
Yeah, and the review notes that the devastating impact of the election that the Liberal Party holds only four of the 44 inner metropolitan seats, and it recommends that candidates in future sign a code of conduct. So clearly there, Eleanor, the Liberal Party looking really deeply at what they need to change possibly before the next election. Yeah, it's interesting because the Liberal Party's review of what happened in the election correlates perfectly with what Labor said, which also concluded that Morrison's unpopularity was the single biggest factor in Anthony Albanese becoming Prime Minister. A group of Australians stranded at Peru's famous Machu Picchu have now been evacuated. According to the Department of Foreign Affairs, the majority of the 171 Australians who've contacted them asking for help have now been able to leave the area. Hundreds of international tourists became stranded after the country was plunged into chaos earlier this month when former President Pedro Castillo was impeached and arrested. His removal from power has inflamed political tensions in the country. The ensuing protests have left 25 people dead, as well as injuring hundreds of others. Yeah, rail and air travel has also been disrupted with people storming airports, but no Australians have been detained or injured. And Eleanor, there's been a month-long state of emergency, which has been put in place by Peruvian authorities and major disruption to transport. And I understand they had to use helicopters to evacuate uh, those international tourists from the Andes, um, that hundreds have been stuck there at Machu Picchu for a week after train lines were cut by protesters. Briefly, Cyclone Ellie has become the first of the season to cross the coast. The Category 1 storm making landfall this morning, southwest of Darwin. Eight people have been handed multi-year bans following the weekend's A-League pitch invasion. The cap on gas prices is coming into effect today. Power bills will still increase next year, but not by as much as a result. Western Australia's Premier Mark McGowan has revealed the defamation case against Clive Palmer has cost the state's taxpayers more than $2 million. It was amid a battle when Palmer wanted $30 billion in business damages over COVID restrictions. And Dreamworld will pay $2.15 million to the family of a woman who died when its Thunder River Rapids ride malfunctioned in 2016. Three others were also killed. Thanks, Eleanor. That's the headlines. Coming up, we're going to talk about Santa Camp and go behind the scenes of a US training camp for Santas. Santa, the bearded man dressed all in red with a jolly laugh and a belly who spreads Christmas cheer. While we never seem to question how creepy it is that someone enters your house uninvited to leave presents, we aren't too keen, it seems, on changing what Santa looks like. A new film takes you down the chimney and behind the scenes of a Santa training camp in the US as it tries to diversify its ranks and tackle the question of why Santa has to look a certain way. Nick Sweeney is the director of Santa Camp Thanks for joining the briefing. Now, Nick, this film is delightful, but leaves you with a lot to think about. How did you come across Santa Camp? I was really curious about how people learn to become professional clauses. I was unsure about whether they do like a certificate or do they go to school or do they just wing it? And so I started to do some research and it being America, 
there was, of course, a summer camp for Santa Clauses because there's a summer camp for, for basically everything in America. And as soon as I found out about this, this summer camp run by a group called the New England Santa Society, my head started spinning. I just thought, how could this exist? What happens at the camp? And the more I found out, the more I just thought I need to get in there and start filming. But what I discovered as well when I reached out to the organizers was that there were some pretty big changes coming in the near future. So what is it like being a professional Santa, a Mrs. Claus or an elf in the US? I mean, how much does that differ from Australia, for instance? It's a big business over here in the States. Top Santas can earn about $2,000 a day if they're really good at their job. But to get those, the big bucks, they have to wear many hats, not just a Santa hat. They've got to be a psychologist and a teacher and a magician and a a confidant. Like they have to really be ready for anything. And often kids will ask them really tough questions like, can you bring my grandparent back or can you get my parents back together? And so the Santas have to be prepared for every possible eventuality. And I think also over here in the States, they do take Christmas very, very seriously. And the weight that they attach to the holiday of Christmas over here is part of why some people have a very rigid idea of who Santa should be. And we see in the film that there's some really serious opposition to the idea of Santa evolving and not being an old fat white guy. Yeah, well, I mean, this organizations of Santas that we meet in the film are trying to diversify their ranks. But I mean, what got them thinking about, you know, these traditional understandings of particularly Santa's appearance? You know, when I first reached out to the organizers, um, it was in 2020. It was in the middle of this this big reckoning about race and representation and diversity. And the Santa Society itself had been getting requests for Santas from different backgrounds, like Black Santas and LGBTQ plus Santas. And they didn't yet have that in their membership. They weren't able to to offer those Santas to their clients when they were asking for them. They were at the beginning of starting to do some outreach to try to find Santas from more diverse backgrounds and to get them along to Santa camp and to to then send them out into the real world um, as clauses, which we see happening in the film. So tell me about who we follow to Santa camp. Tell me about Chris, Levi and Finn. What kind of Santas are they and what are they bringing to the mix? The unconventional Santas that the New England Santa Society brought along to Santa camp, there's three of them. There's Chris, who is a black father from North Little Rock, Arkansas. And back in 2020, he had put an inflatable black Santa on his lawn and received a racist note in response to that from a neighbor telling him to take it down because, you know, that neighbor believed that Santa was white. And Chris's response to this racist letter was to turn a negative into a positive and to go to Santa camp and become Santa himself for his community. And in the film, we see him at camp and then we see him go out into the real world where um, families drive over 300 miles just to see a black Santa. We also follow Santa Levi. He's a transgender Santa. And Levi and his wife, Heidi, who goes by Dr. Claus, they're LGBTQ plus community Santas. Um, Levi, being transgender, wanted to become Santa because for him growing up, he never got to see any representation of himself. And one of the things that, that we see him talk about in the film is how much of a difference it would have made to him to have met a Santa that was trans and who understood him. 
And then we also follow Finn. Finn is a Santa with a disability. He has spina bifida and he's he's non-speaking, but he communicates via an iPad. And his dream is to be a Santa in a parade, but parade gigs are very, very competitive for Santa Clauses to get, especially if, if you're a Santa Claus with a disability. So we follow the ups and downs of their journeys you know, in as they head to camp where, you know, there are some speed bumps when they get there and then also out into the real world where they become Santas for their communities. Well, Nick, I mean, on those speed bumps, I mean, what are some of those challenges that they're grappling with in attending Santa camp? You know, people have a very rigid idea of who should get to play Santa. And, you know, at the, the camp itself, we see these very big-hearted Santas, this old guard, doing their best to try to to make the unconventional clauses feel welcome. And most of the time they get it right, but some of the time they get it wrong. And, you know, there's a few funny, interesting examples of that. One very interesting example is actually the other strand that we follow is um, the Mrs. Clauses who go to Santa camp. And those Mrs. Clauses have actually been starting to fight for equal pay and equal billing as Mrs. Clauses. Yeah, there are some really kind of awkward moments that you kind of cringe a little bit because it is new for a lot of these Santas, meeting Santas from different backgrounds and trying to work out how do we even have conversations with them, Nick? And- yeah, you definitely see some some awkward moments in the film. Adapting to change is never easy. And, you know, it, it can be even more difficult when it's this this icon that everyone has a very clear idea of, you know, who they should be. Um, it, it's a bumpy sleigh ride. And we definitely see that in some moments at Santa camp between the the old and the new Santas. And you you recognize as the person watching all of this unfold that it's it's coming from a, a place of of real intent, but it's just the awkwardness of of getting there to where you've got clearly a lot of education happening and you can kind of see this moment between Levi and Heidi where they're kind of like, oh, like just trying to, you know, trying to also remain, um, I guess, open-minded with the process that was happening and realizing that this could be what they were going to get. But then at the same time, they're in it and they're like, there's that great moment of them just sort of taking time out on a golf buggy. Yeah, I lo- you know, there were definitely moments, I think, for the unconventional clauses where it was overwhelming being the kind of fish out of water, being the only black person or the only person who's trans. You know, I, I think it's a lot. And like none of these conversations, none of these issues around diversity and representation, none of them are straightforward. Like these are complex things for everyone. And, you know, Santa Camp is no different to that. I think it's kind of similar to the kind of tension that we see out in the real world. And the fact that they're dressed as Santas and Mrs. Clauses obviously adds a layer of kind of surreal texture to it. But these are these are very real moments. And I think they're ones that, that we can all relate to. We all worry about saying the wrong thing, you know, and the Santa community sometimes um, has that, that worry as well. It's kind of an interesting one, Nick, because Look, as an Indigenous Australian, I'm, I'm very used to a Black Santa. Black Santa is a, you know, it's a very big deal in Indigenous communities here. And it's interesting then to watch what Chris comes up against of the wider community grappling with, well, can Santa be anything else but white? Yeah. And I was very shocked at the level of opposition to the idea of Santa being, you know, anything but an, an old white guy. I certainly never thought when I, 
started filming a documentary about Christmas and Santa Clauses that I would be face-to-face with the Proud Boys. We follow Levi, the transgender Santa, when he does his first gig and, you know, it's for LGBTQ kids and and the Proud Boys show up to protest. And, you know, they feel extremely passionately that Santa should not be portrayed by anybody who's not, you know, the standard old white guy. And um, one of the justifications that one of the Proud Boys gives is the Bible that I read says that this is a sin, referring to the transgender Santa. And, and all I could say in the moment was, but Santa's not in the Bible. But it's very shocking to see the level of opposition that people have to the idea of Santa evolving and, you know, the idea that that Santa should reflect all of us. I certainly didn't think that that we would be seeing that level of opposition to this idea when we started the film. I mean, Nick, what was that experience like for you of being, you know, cal- you know on the other side of the camera, I guess, and, and watching this and having to have that interaction with the Proud Boys? I mean, what was going through your head at the time in that in that uh, part of the film? In this moment where the Proud Boys showed up to protest, you hear me talking a little bit to the Proud Boys and and you can hear a shakiness in my voice. I sound scared because I am scared. It was a very unexpected and strange and surreal and slightly scary moment because the Proud Boys are an extremist group with a well-documented history of violence. And, you know, I, I was definitely nervous. Um, there were security people there and we actually discovered afterwards that there were a number of undercover police from the Chicago Police Department that were in that neighborhood and were kind of monitoring the situation. But um, it's definitely scary. I was nervous that I would get punched in the face. And um, and I was also nervous that it would disrupt this event for LGBTQ plus kids and their families who were only there to to get a photo with Transanser and to experience joy. Yeah, and it's an interesting part of the film where you actually do have those interactions and you and you do interact with someone else who's also come along as a protester to, you know, to show their displeasure at what's going on. But if we fast forward, I mean, how are they all going? I mean, I found myself at the end of the doco while feeling uplifted and going, oh, this is great. I did feel a little sad. And, and you know, it left me with a lot of questions that I had to jump on to Instagram to see if they were still going and they were still on this journey of, of professional centering. Yeah. I mean, the film is definitely a mixture of heartwarming and heart-wrenching. You know, the, the roller coaster that these clauses go on, it, it's a lot. You know, like it, it kind of leaves your head spinning and leaves your heart bursting, but also hurting a little bit. Luckily, the reaction to the film has been extremely positive and the, the various different clauses have actually been getting messages from quote unquote unconventional clauses like them all over the world. Santa Finn, who is a, a Santa with a disability, Santa Finn has been getting messages from other aspiring Santas with disabilities in places like Argentina and even Australia, actually, from from clauses who are deaf and who are neurodivergent, saying that seeing him in the film has inspired them to really pursue this dream of being a professional Santa. And then also, you know, people have been reaching out to Levi, the transgender Santa, you know, to say how meaningful it was to them to see themselves represented in the Christmas genre of film. It, it's traditionally a very homogenous genre of movie. And, you know, one of the other things we see in the film is Chris, the black Santa, you know, when he does his first big Santa gig, people drive 300 miles to see him since the film has come out. I believe he's booked 250 gigs 
as a professional black Santa, Gee. which just shows that like the demand is is so high for Santas who break the mold. I think what the film really shows is the demand is definitely there for Santas who who are not cookie cutter. That's Nick Sweeney, an Australian director living in the US, whose film Santa Camp is on streaming platform Binge now. That's it for the briefing this week. Have a wonderful Christmas or a public holiday if you don't celebrate it. Now, next week, Tom's back to bring you some of our favourite episodes from the year. Listener.